0: Welcome to the second of this round of Jewish mysticism and um, Jewish mystical texts and looking at those texts to understand how some of these concepts might apply to our lives. Um, If you got the email from Eleanor because you signed up, hopefully you got that this is the book we've been studying from. Uh, and so if you want to get a copy of this book, terrific, uh, because it is a wonderful resource. It is Jewish Mysticism and the Spiritual Life, Classical Texts, Contemporary Reflections, because that's what we're about here. Mm-hmm. Classical Texts, Contemporary Reflection. So um, I want to make sure that I say again um, a little bit about this book and a little bit about the text we're doing so that you can uh, get a sense of why this is called Jewish Mysticism. A lot, most of these texts actually are Hasidic texts. And so people say, well, wait a minute. I thought we were studying Jewish mysticism. Like, what are we doing with Hasidus? What are we doing with Hasidut, with Hasidic texts? So the Hasidic movement comes out of the Jewish mystical tradition. So it's essentially neo-mysticism. And the Hasidic movement was very much about how to bring kind of these lofty, Ideas into the daily life of the Jewish person. Uh, and that's what they were concerned with, Jewish people. So I'm not going to try to be politically corrective about them and who they were and how they were writing and for whom they were writing. This was about living a Jewish life. And this is about how do we take the teachings of Kabbalah, the teachings of Jewish mysticism, and really bring them through us into our daily lives. How does it help inform our daily lives? How does it help lift us up out of our daily lives, uh, into contact with the divine, into contact with um, big, wonderful, spiritual other realms. Um, And for them, here's what I love about it, here's why I teach it, here's why um, I am a firm uh, peddler (laughs) of this material, is because to do that, they did not think you needed to leave the material world. They did not think you needed to go somewhere else and contemplate your navel in silence and in isolation in order to reach those same places and in order to bring those same energies down and through. They wanted to do it through how we lived uh, our daily lives and as part of Jewish community, not in isolation or not in separation from um, the physical aspects of life and the absolute belonging to community. Were there elite circles? Of course. <laughs> Did they like to hang with each other instead of the regular folk? Of course. Um, that's always been true, right, in any discipline. But Has- Hasidic teaching, Hasidic life was really about the life um, of the daily. And this was in response to a lot of the more intellectual, lofty, you know, isolated uh, movements within Judaism. So, first of all, let's clarify some terms. Those of you who have learned with me before in this series from last year or even just from last, I'm going to say week, I'm going to keep saying week and always translate in your head month. Okay? When I say week, you think month. So last week... <laughs> If you were with me, um, right? We we first started unpacking this whole idea, the whole business of what the heck is Kabbalah. What is it? Anybody want to translate for me what Kabbalah is? (laughs) Good, Mark. Just just throw stuff out. Doesn't matter. Giving. Okay, good. So, in giving, there is receiving. Likabel. In Hebrew, to receive. So there is a giving. Where does the giving come from? God. God. And there's a receiving. The receivers are us. We are receivers, right? That's that's what we do. We receive. So Kabbalah, that which is received. So often people think of Kabbalah as a book, a work. A teaching. It's not. It's a, it's a category of teaching. It's a category of approach, different approaches that all we would call are mostly in the mystical realm. What do we mean by mystical then? Right? So a lot of times people think, again, that's otherworldly. It's completely other than our regular daily lives. And it is, universally acceptable in the same way to everybody and that is not a Jewish understanding. So we spoke last time about, you know, what does it mean for Madonna to study Kabbalah? I don't know. (laughs) Does she find something within Kabbalah that moves her that's universal? Of course. Probably, yes. That is not how Kabbalists or the Kabbalistic tradition would have understood what you do with Kabbalah. Kabbalah is meant to be lived within normative Jewish practice, a normative Jewish life within Jewish community. It is not a universal system. Does it address the universal? Of course. You can't be talking about God or the divine or energy or creation without talking about the universal. But they weren't interested in just the universal. They were interested in how do we as Jews access the universal and help make it meaningful for us so that we can live lives connected to God and to godliness. And if we all do that, guess what's going to happen? The whole world is going to be repaired, right? And it's all going to look so much better than it does right now. And in that, I am a holy roller and a true believer. I'm not saying this is exclusive to Jews. I'm saying this is our language for talking about this stuff. The Native Americans have their own gorgeous, wonderful, amazing way of doing the same kind of thing. Trying to access the universal, the big, the amazing, and and make it intimate and close and here and now so that I change, what I do changes, and then the world changes. And if every people on this planet did that, says our tradition the world would be healed, the world would be fixed, the world would be repaired, and we would live in the Messianic age. Dana?
1: I just want to clarify, so since we're not Madonna, but when you say living a Jewish life, that means
0: maybe celebrating the Jewish holidays throughout the year, I just don't mean Hanukkah, but is that what do you
2: mean by a Jewish life?
0: So so that's a good question. It's a fair question. I'm not sure what the answer is. Um (laughs) I think what I mean is that it was never meant to be, okay, you know, here, here's, this, here's this mystical tradition, and anybody in the whole world can take it and just run with it, and it becomes some kind of definitive system for them to approach their spiritual lives. It, it was meant to be incorporated into a Jewish spiritual life. Does that make sense?
3: How about just following the Ten Commandments to start with, that living a Jewish life is following the Ten Commandments? What it perfect, you perfect. perfect. You wonderful.
2: You know, you know but Kabbalah is really just a subset of oral Torah, all of which is both written and oral.
0: So mysticism in general is a subset, Mark is saying, of oral Torah, and Torah is the written Torah and the oral tradition of interpretation right. and explication around it, for sure, because the canon was closed right. after a certain point. But is it different for me than Torah? Not so much. No. Absolutely
4: So my understanding is if we look at our existence, we can look at it from many perspectives. There's the Jewish perspectives, and there have been some books or teachings or rabbis or leaders that have given what their understanding of uh, Jewish life is. So if you want to know what Jewish life is, I would say um, perhaps read, not read, but just like uh, uh, inform ourselves
0: with this perspective of Judaism to the books, I guess. Is it? I mean, I'm I, just... I, I... I understood Dana's question, and you'll correct me if I'm wrong, I understood Dana's question to mean I made this kind of blanket statement of, you know, Kabbalah was never meant to be outside of normative Jewish life. And I heard Dana challenging me a little bit gently and wonderfully and lovingly uh, on what does that mean, normative Jewish life? Because an Orthodox Jew is going to tell me I'm not living a normative Jewish life, how can I study Kabbalah? So you know, and so I, I appreciate the distinction, which is why I said my honest answer is I don't know. Um, but what I do know is that it was it was never meant to be something out there disconnected from Judaism, Judaism, and a Jewish understanding and perspective for for the for the better and the worst that that might mean, if that makes any sense. All right. So, so
2: yes, Ruben. Wikipedia says that there are uh, non-Jewish organizations that. Practice Kabbalah, right? I don't know what that means, but.
0: and I don't know what that means either. So I'm with you. I'm not sure what that means. So I think what it means is they study these texts and they apply it to life, just based in those texts. But you can't talk about Eden, and there's there's things you can't talk I, that we believe you can't talk about without all of the. You know, kind of resonances that go along with that that are Jewish resonances. And, I mean, you can do it. Look, I, I, I don't, I'm not queen of the world yet. And so I <laughs> don't make the rules yet. But, so anyone can do whatever they want. But it, I just want to be clear that that was never the intention. And most of us still believe that Kabbalah disconnected from kind of a Jewish way of understanding. A, uh, it, it, it pulls it Away from its source so far that I'm not sure what it is, but it's not Jewish mysticism. It's something else, which is fine. You know, people can do whatever they want, but it's it's not it's not a, it's not a system within <coughs> itself that anybody can just do. That was never the intention. Isn't it sort of
3: like Tao? Like Tao is, the, is a path. It's related to a culture, but that doesn't mean other people can't you know, learn Benefit. from it, inform their lives, make decisions based upon it, etc. So
0: is yes. kind of similar? Yes. I think it's very similar. Um, yes. Alright, so so we've defined term a little bit. The term's just a little bit. So Kabbalah, this idea of receiving, it's a huge, vast, you know, collection of literature that spans a very long time. A very long time. When we hear about the chariot, Ezekiel, Ezekiel's, like, it goes really far back into the early rabbinic period, this origin of Jewish mystical writings, and it evolves. The Kabbalah most of us are talking about is Lurianic Kabbalah. The Kabbalah of Rabbi Isaac Luria. That's what most of us know. That's what most of us mean when we say Kabbalah and we don't even know about the other stuff. We don't know that we don't know, but we don't know about the other stuff. Anything we know tends to be about Lorianic Kabbalah. Okay. So as I said in the last class, we are not going to get caught up. It's a wonderful thing to do to get caught up in, but we're not gonna get caught up in this theoretic system and what exactly are the terms of Kabbalah and what are what do they mean. We are not we are not going to that um, intellectual place of ideas. We are using how our tradition has brought those ideas and ideals into daily life, reflections on how is it meaningful for us. If you would like to take a college course in Kabbalah b'vakasha, I invite you to do that. It's fantastic. It's amazing. It's wonderful. It's not what we're doing. So if you got the email with the assigned reading for tonight, then you know we are in a section of this book that uh, that I told you about, Jewish, mysticism, and the spiritual life. We are in the section of holiness in the kitchen. It doesn't get more grounded than that. Right? This is Chava Weisler. This is her piece uh, about taking challah from, whenever you're going to make bread, you take challah. You take a portion of kezayit. You take an olives, a large olive's worth of dough. And that is given as it would have been in the time of the temple, to the priesthood, to the poor, to all of the um, spiritually municipal (laughs) things that had to happen. And you understood every time you went to make your standard loaf of bread, which was the, of course, staple of the diet in the ancient world uh, into modern times. uh, The the staple was was bread, and so every time you went to just do the very daily staple act of preparing to bake a loaf of bread, you took challah. And Chava Weisler goes into right connecting that. Back to this whole idea of the temple system, of what it means to be in relationship to the divine through food. Through the food that we collected when we harvested our crops. When all the way through it becoming harvested, it becoming threshed, whatever that's called. Um, separated, you know, and then ground and then packaged and then sold and then bought and then brought home and then prepared. And then the yeast and then the what? All from Planting all the way to Chala Understanding that whole cycle As being related to the energies of the divine And taking Chala Is that last step of acknowledging That all of this originates in Works through, comes through the divine And then into our daily regular lives at the table Who here bakes bread on a daily basis?
1: Uh-huh. I used to. I used to. Mm-hmm.
0: Right. Most of us do not. <laughs> I did it once. I don't even, you know, I don't even eat wheat gluten anymore. So, like, I'm completely disconnected. But the the point Chava Weisler is coming to talk about is once upon a time that would have been most of a woman's daily life was taking care of procuring preparing cooking baking grinding whatever and serving cleaning up after and doing it all again the meals of the day that would have been a lot of her daily life and so for people who are still in some way connected to this idea of what it means to be in the kitchen preparing to feed one's family, this idea of taking challah, we're, we're like, you know, tingling it, throw it in the fire, and then the priests and the, th- who cares? The point of Kabbalah, all of this, is about saying, okay, maybe we don't care about taking challah. Maybe that's not something meaningful to us, evocative of the temple and of giving in that system. Okay. What is? What is meaningful to us? Because that's a question we don't even ask. I don't know about you, but rushed days and evenings, which is a lot of my at home in the kitchen time. Like, I am certainly not the spiritual place (laughs) when I am preparing food. Right? It's all... uh, uh, And so... So for me, the important thing is not just... It doesn't still speak to us this way. But the fundamental idea that we need to stop. And we need to be appreciative of... Okay, A, the food. But B, the miraculous processes that go on around all of that food production... The amount of people we are in contact with that we don't even know. I was driving with my daughter down from Ventura the other day when we had our mini vacation. And she's like, what are they doing, Mom, over there? (laughs) They're picking the strawberries that you eat, honey, over there. She's like, wow, that looks like such fun. (laughs) I would love to do that job, right? You can imagine the conversation that happened after that. Um, (laughs) Their kids don't have education, they don't have food, they don't have care. you know, so whatever, but the point is she reminds, right, how often do I eat a strawberry, I'm just like, get it washed get it in the bowl and get it done when it's like, I watch those people bent over in the field and I think uh, we so often forget how many people we're connected to, how many people we depend on, just to be able to wash that food and grunt through preparing it then, Kabbalah goes further And says, but it's not just even the physical fruit and your appreciation of it. There's actually something happening there energetically. And we can choose to be aware of it or not. It's still happening. But here's the difference. If we're not aware of it and don't come into some kind of conscious relationship to this spiritual set of facts, we're going to talk about how, then we miss the opportunity to, are you ready for this? To further unify the divine. That's all. That's all we're missing. (laughs) An opportunity to further unify the divine. What does that even begin to mean? If you know anything about Loriana Kabbalah, which those of you who were here last time do, you know that in Loriana Kabbalah, The whole idea of creation is that something went terribly wrong. Right? This was not the intention. God pulls God's self out. God does this loving act of of pulling God's self out of creation enough for there to be room for creation. Because everything was God before that. And when God does that, God then pours God's self back in. And when God does that, the vessels that were meant to contain the divine light coming back in shattered. And those sparks of divinity wound up everywhere in the universe, trapped in material things. The clepot, the um, peel, the rind, the outside, the material. Who's here, who here is a scientist of any kind? So what do we know about this? T- talk to me about this and energy. What do we know about that? If I look in the, the, the most powerful microscope we have, what will I see about energy and this? Not, con- not that kind of scientist. Sorry.
1: Energy.
2: Cells. Atoms. The sun was captured to make that. Oh, did you hear that <laughs> really
0: piece of poetry over there? Uh, yeah. <laughs> what you'll find if you look in here is energy. It's moving molecules. Moving. It's moving. It's moving, moving a lot up. slower than other kinds of energy. Maybe it's moving. It's energy. The sun was captured to make this. Love that. That's right. Now we go. What if you? If I just told this to you, you know, three hundred years ago, you'd be like, yeah, it, whatever, right. <laughs> But now we, we actually can bring together what we've known for a very long time, what every wisdom and spiritual tradition knows with scientific evidence that they are not, in fact, separate. They are not polar opposite science and spiritual teaching. They are, of course, expressions of the same reality. We're just looking at it through a different lens. This is frozen energy. This is the sun. So Kabbalah's not wrong. The divine energy that is in everything, in everywhere in this cosmos, is in every cell of our beings, and it's in every atom of this table. We just relate to the expression of that energy differently. Okay, that's all good, that's all fine. However, I can change my relationship to some of that energy if I do what? If I pray, if I have kavanah, if I have holy, sacred intention, which also involves, I believe, of course, attention. So for the Kabbalists, saying a bracha over food is it thanking God? Yes, but for them, that's nursery school level. That you're thanking God. Yes, of course you're thanking God. How? Because would we ever think to eat without thanking God? God forbid! So of course you're thanking God, but pff, that's child's play. What are you really doing when you stop before eating that strawberry and you say a bracha? And you recite words of intention and grateful attention? you actually those words interact your your spark your divine spark that's the energy that is in you reacts with the energy in the strawberry and you can set that spark free and that spark is liberated to unite back with the divine source otherwise you just consume the strawberry that's our opportunity at every single juncture of our physical day, of our physical lives, is we have the opportunity to recite words, to use our attention, our intention, to unify with the divine energy in everything around us. And when we do, we release something different. Now, is that language we would use maybe not not necessarily okay would you say nowadays we would say you're being mindful mm-hmm. so what's the point of mindfulness yes i think it is what's the point of mindfulness
3: it's to acknowledge what you're doing saying eating thinking whatever why well you're aware of it and so perhaps you can
0: Change or change what Millie? <laughs> Your thoughts or actions, uh, ha, ha, ha,
3: ha. or uh, response. <laughs>
0: mm-hmm. Yeah, they're talking about a change that something is actually changed, something's different when we do it this way. Mm-hmm. It changes how I experience that eating, but also it changes, hopefully, right? How. How that act then has me act in the world. So that when I do that, when I behave differently out of that attention, out of that awareness, out of that intention, out of that gratitude, out of whatever, compassion for the strawberry pickers, right, on the road that I saw, then I change my actions, which then has a real effect on the world. It's not just a nice idea.
1: For them? Is it, for me, it's the energy of
0: relationships. That, that energy that's created through relationships. I mean, you see it, especially, I guess, in parent child, mother child, when a baby's born, when it's nonverbal, <coughs> when you're meeting each other's needs and it's
3: through. All the nonverbal parts of yourself and them, and their self,
0: and getting to know them in that way. And there, I was when I was preparing this, I was reading this wonderful article by Rabbi Yitz G- Greenberg that you all—sorry, sh- uh, Rabbi um, Yitz Ginsberg—that you should all uh, look up if you want mystical Judaism's perspective on nutrition. <laughs> <laughs> it's a great piece. It's a great piece. But um, but talk—you know—talking about this idea of relationship, he says. If we eat our food with this realization in mind, and you'll have to read the paragraph before, we can extract the divine life force or the divine spark that is the inner essence of the food. As a result, the level of nutrition, both physical as well as cognitive and spiritual nutrition that we gain from the food will be much greater than if we eat without this realization in mind. And you might go... Scientists looking at babies who are eating, newborns who are eating, who are alone with a bottle, and babies who are eating, right, making eye contact, skin, smell, contact with another human being, their digestion changes. This is stuff we've known forever, right, is that it changes who we are, and so it changes how we receive the same food and what our body is able to do with it as a result because of the state we're in when we take it in. The one
1: really interesting is Ruth Feldman out of Bar Alon in Israel has done a whole lot of research on oxytocin that, that is released when you breastfeed, etc. She found
0: in gay couples, in the nurturing father, that the same oxytocin is released. I, that's just amazing. <laughs> right? Yeah. The, science I mean, the science bears out yeah. You know what wisdom traditions have known for a very long time. Mark?
2: I was just thinking of it slightly differently. Um, all of this is really designed to create a channel between heaven and earth. And so taking what you said and just driving it one step higher... Sort of brings God down, and through the process of eating it, you elevate holiness back
0: So it is what Rabbi Joel Hecker, thank you for that intro, what Rabbi Joel Hecker calls a spiritual ecosystem. That it's given to us, right? It comes down, if you will. We take it in And when we do that with a certain intention A certain attention A certain approach Then what happens is we are able to put it out Differently and it goes back up And it creates a feedback loop A positive feedback loop That is a spiritual ecosystem And when all we do is consume When all we do is take Mindlessly Then purposelessly Um We break that, we break the feedback. We don't give anything back that way. Right? We're just, we're just taking. Blanche?
3: My mind has the word entitlement screaming at me. Mm. Because this
0: is the opposite. Right. Because what does entitlement mean? We deserve it. It's due us. (laughs) It's due us. And why do I deserve it? I can pay for it. I can pay for it. <laughs> I made it. I. I own it. I, I. I, 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 it, in the language of Boober, right? <laughs> I, it, it is a thing, it is a possession, it is to be owned and controlled. And a Jewish approach always says, this, see, this is why it's linked back to Judaism, I'm telling you, um, Entitlement. Who does it all belong to according to a Jewish approach? God. God. <laughs> we don't own any of it. We rent it. <laughs> you're allowed to rent it. That's a good thing. You should. You're supposed to. <clears throat> but you're supposed to make sure everybody can pay the rent. <laughs> Their place may not be as big or as glorious as yours, but everyone should be able to. To eat. It doesn't belong to us. The land doesn't belong to us. We are not entitled to anything. Or, said differently, everyone is entitled to eat. how Halavai. <laughs> Halavai, it should only be. Right? right? So, everyone's entitled to eat because it belongs to God. And we know from our tradition that God wants everyone to eat. So... It's not some lofty ideal that's out there somewhere else. I'm going to give you a piece by Rabbi Joel Hecker because for next month, (laughs) um, the the next reading in our, in our book is Eating as a Spiritual Ecosystem by Rabbi Joel Hecker. And I thought, oh, yay, that's going to be so exciting. Then I looked, remember when we've done the text together before and the texts are like this big? Right, And it takes us a whole two hours to unpack a text this big. Uh, one, two, three pages of text. And then he unpacks it. And I thought, oh, no way. No way. Don't kill me. So um, I'm going to give you a shorter version <laughs> of Rabbi Joel Hacker's eating as a spiritual ecosystem that we're going to look at a little bit together to get a little bit more deeply into some of these concepts. And then... You're going to read the long version, which we're going to talk about at even greater length next time. But I want to introduce us to some of these concepts because I think it's wonderful and fascinating and fantastic and... Well, no, cast no, cast no, yeah.
2: passed, yeah.
0: Yes, Linda. I um,
2: um, oh, was oh, read
0: reading this and, and I've known about me. <coughs> like the the hollow
3: if you get know, yeah, a little so deep, I just deep. I'll take one and pass it down. But I've always thought about it in terms of you we're know, um rip ripping it off, <laughs> and throwing it into fire, and it burns out. And I've always thought, well that doesn't do anything for you know, the relationship. Building a relationship, and then I read in the article today. How how uh, Chava Weiss, whatever name, um, take that piece of challah and throw it in the yard for the squirrels yeah. and the birds, and, yeah, and to convenient. me that just makes
0: so much more sense. Yeah. Right, and that that was going to be my closing piece tonight. Oh, is now, <laughs> you've <laughs> whet their that. appetite um, <laughs> is exactly yeah. that. Like because because that's for me the point of even being here is. What is it that we can do, right, in our daily lives that starts to get at kind of affecting some some of exactly what this is about? And I think hers is a beautiful, beautiful solution. I, I just think it's beautiful. Dana, are you trying to say something? Uh, I just wanted to ask a question that I didn't want answered now, but like for you to... You wanted to ask the question that you don't want answered?
2: Right now. Are I mean, you Jewish? I for real? <laughs> <laughs>
1: no,
2: no, no. I, I was just thinking about keeping kosher and all the thought that has. Continued. Keeping kosher. And how it's. You put so much thought
3: into keeping kosher, it's your thought in, is in the behavior. Because what you, it's what you do. There's not.
0: It doesn't feel very spiritual sometimes because you're busy keeping kosher. Is this right? This right? Yeah. Right. So, so, so you bring up, and you, we can't talk about the spirituality in the kitchen without, if we're talking about it Jewishly, without talking about kashrut, right? So, so, while I appreciate absolutely that traditional expressions of kashrut are not necessarily spiritually terribly informative for a lot of us, what I think remains really really important about kashrut that we progressive Jews are not being very good about, any Jews, anybody in the world is not, in the West, is not being very good about, is boundaries around eating. Do I care if it's a scavenger? No, that's not what's spiritually informative or meaningful to me, other than... That my people have been expressing Jewish identity around not eating certain things for thousands of years. That's Kaplan. And I'm a firm Reconstructionist in that I think that is absolutely spiritually viable as a reason not to eat certain things. Right? So, I don't eat pork. I don't eat shellfish. um, That's just... One way for me to express my boundaries around eating That are simply because this is how Jews have done it for thousands of years It is my expression of belonging to the Jewish people And it does not necessarily spiritually inform me in any other way What I am concerned about as a Westerner In 2014 America, abundance land Is that we have no boundaries around consumption in general And food is one because we have to do it every day, several times a day. It's one of the places we we um, transgress the most often, and I violate my own spiritual principles all the time around this. So for me, what I'd like to see us take seriously is the idea as a progressive Jewish community around. So what what are the spiritual values around setting limits and boundaries around what we eat? What are meaningful to us? I don't eat veal. I don't eat goose pate anymore. Right? Because for me, there's just some limits on what I should be allowed to do to another creature because it tastes good. Now, does that make killing a cow any better? Don't answer that, Elisa. Does, Does that make killing a cow any better? Okay, clearly in my spiritual hierarchy of values, it's worse to do to baby calves what they do to them and to geese what they do to them than it is what we do to a cow. Okay, I'm not saying that should be true for anybody else, but I really would like us to start having some conversations. Right? So I totally appreciate the point about Crush Roots. And I really worry that we've just kind of eradicated the whole idea of a discussion about parameters around what should we be eating and not eating out of spiritual values. Um, Health values may be related to spiritual values, but not always. In
3: the reading, they talk about um, the woman takes the piece of bread and she puts it and she burns it and she says a prayer that is basically... You know, I'm taking the place of the priest I'm, I'm doing this burnt offering and it's releasing me of all my sins so that I can come into the world at the next moment as a newborn child What we, we haven't really talked about that part of it at all and that's, that's um, a pretty kind of ancient idea
0: a pretty kind of what? a
3: pretty ancient kind of idea mm-hmm. that we can just cleanse ourselves by burning something So that's a little bit
0: offensive. So that is a very ancient idea, and I believe some ancient things are eternal. And I love the practice on Yom Kippur that I used to have in Duluth of having my congregants write sins on an index card—one that they'd committed against themselves, one on the other side that they'd committed against the community—and we read them out loud. Mm. I read them as the final confession of Yom Kippur. And then we put them in a big thing and believe me, there was not a dry eye in the house contemplating suicide. But you know, I mean, really serious. I swear it relates. And then we put them all in a big pot at the end and Yom Kippur concludes with Havdalah. It doesn't need to be Saturday night. It concludes with Havdalah. And we took the Havdalah candle and we lit those on fire. And I can tell you for a fact most of us Felt different once they were burned. Why? I you think
3: your sins go away just because you've to a
0: piece? I think there's something very yes. powerful Absolutely. about the intention of saying, with this act, I release the, the Samsonite luggage that I'm dragging behind me. Now, of course, our Teshuvah practice means you have to make reparations first. Right? You, you, you have to... But that's not happening. So, so, so hey, can I say something? To me. So, so, but I think the symbolism of... I I perform this act of somehow physically doing something that helps me release. I, I think it's helpful for us. We can talk through how, you know, and when and where. Um, it's evocative of the way our people have done it for a really long time, which is why I think women have been in traditional Jewish society have been connected to it. They're still praying for the third temple. So for them, it's not an ancient idea that's lost its meaning. They still want sacrifice back. I don't, but I can appreciate that for some people, they still relate to an idea of there's something, there's a ritual thing to do that actually affects change. Right? It does. It does. It's not what I am reaching for, but it's it is meaningful for some people. But
3: you're paying attention to the act of doing. it. I have to agree because that's never made a whole lot of sense but in thinking about what you're saying the actual act of writing it down that's like saying it out loud which most people don't do and 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 releasing it as you said can have a certain can have an effect on how you might pay attention going forward I, I, I totally agree with that but the thing is when you take the bread and you put it and you burn it you're not you're not attaching to it any you know oh I a baked it like di- Amy,
0: I have done that my whole life that's how my mother raised me exactly. she said when you make the hollow you put a little piece yeah, exactly. in for God
2: mm-hmm. and that's for God and it's still, meaningful.
0: It's, and it's it's still meaningful. meaningful okay so for some people and it remains This is meaningful tonight is the first night that
3: I actually knew it was in the Torah she always she always said well you know, it, it's in the Torah. I didn't think it actually was because she also wow. told me that wearing shoes that hurt on the high holidays was in the Torah. So,
1: but I can't believe everything. Especially when your mother. But when, when I, I saw that, I thought, "Oh my God, it's mm-hmm. in the Torah." <laughs> okay. Well, I do bake bread. So thank you. I say five
3: days a week, if not every day. I bake today. I bake every day, almost. So I always tear a piece off. And because I'm too nervous to burn it because I don't want the smoke alarms
0: yeah. and the spring. Another off. very Jewish trait. <laughs> right.
1: Right. <laughs> exactly. So and but I give it up to God. It's a
3: connection. It isn't that I'm saying, Okay, you know, this is gonna lose my sins or this that but it is a prayer every time and it's just the act of doing it. And actually New Year's Eve at midnight I wrote down five things that I wanted to character defects that I wanted to leave behind, and I burned them up. That I did burn. Mm-hmm. Just a little piece, right? And but so, it, but it is—it's the—it's the giving it to God. It's the connection, and it's this symbolism yes, every day that yes. it's being mindful. It is a connection. It's that the part, opportunity. That part of take. it, I totally get. Yeah. Like uh, giving it as a as an offering.
0: Right. But we, we don't get to pick what's meaningful to people. But the offering, what, whatever whatever it is, it is right. We have different relationships to those
1: ideas. I think there's something very powerful. Well, the to, first of all, to go back to praying a that the bread will come out because <laughs> <Yes>.
2: <laughs> they, buy it in a they didn't
1: have control over the yeast. It wasn't the package. The yeast. I mean, I was reading. Really, I got so inspired. I thought I'd make pumpkin challah this Friday. And I read the uh, recipe and it said, if the, if the bread isn't rising, run to the store and buy another package. Your yeast isn't good enough. <laughs> <laughs> and I don't think they could do that. And then right. they would have to set the logs just right. They didn't have a dial. I mean, I've been dealing with an oven that's slow for a long time, mm-hmm. you know. And so I just turned it up a little. There's no dial in those days. So there were a lot of unknowns. But more than that, the idea of this bread. I mean, oh, gluten and not gluten, and this kind of bread and multi-grain and Trader Joe's and whole. You know, this is. What they were eating. This is the staff of life. Mm. And there's a sense of trust, of letting go of a little part of it.
2: Mm.
1: It's not going to go to the children. It's not going to go. I'm not going to eat it. I am giving this up in faith that more will come to me.
0: Mm -hmm. Nice. So a release. A way of saying, release, I let go of needing interest. to consume yes. all
1: of I it. I don't need to consume all of it. Because Hopefully, I have trust. I will Moral. be fed. Lovely. My children be- Because will be it was fed. precarious.
0: Especially for the Hasidim. Right? right? A lot of them the were very, very poor. And if that loaf didn't come out, you mm-hmm. ate it anyway. Mm-hmm. If it was at all edible. Right? Because you went to bed hungry often otherwise. This this does not come out of a luxury, right, (laughs) abundant culture.
3: I was thinking maybe all of these things tie together these inconvenient things, the giving of the halal, the kashri, all these things are rituals that you observe that make what could be automatic conscious. Yes. Mm -hmm. So if you have to do something awkward you pay attention if you pay attention
0: then that thing mm-hmm. that you were talking about. Happen. So I would argue that is the entire point of any restriction that we have in Torah. There may be moral implications as well, but for ritual restrictions, that's the entire point. Because <laughs> if you have to pay attention to what you eat, then it already shifts something to say there are categories that are kadosh, That are Tahoe, that are about purity and holiness, and ones that are not. It doesn't mean they're bad. It doesn't mean they're wrong. It means for you, Israelites, that is not connected to holiness. You don't need to know why, (laughs) right? And so, I believe a lot of it is just about making that choice every single time you sit down to eat. I was
4: really. um, I feel like every time we are given a specific halakha or, or anything to do or not to do. It's not just like, oh, go take a piece of halah put it in the, in the fridge and let it dry. I mean, there's something there that is very specific. And fire, if you look at any traditions, more earth traditions, it has a transformative power. Transformative meaning it's moving it from one state to another. The reason I'm saying that, they didn't say, go and rinse it in the ocean, or go rinse it, bury it in the earth, they said, go burn it. So there's something about transformation. So I guess this entire conversation is very symbolic. We cannot look at life as very, okay, practical, and now my sins are gone, how can it be? No, 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 but it's all a symbol. And the symbol trickles to different action, to different, like you said, different uh, acts of keeping Kashrut or not, or treating your friends in a different way. Through those actions, we actually can embody a more sacred and a more um, conscious way of living. So sunshine
0: and energy. Come to us on this plane as table, or as,
3: oops, oops,
0: or or a strawberry. How did you know I was going to say strawberry? Or as strawberry, and then we eat it. And then what did you just talk about? Fire? Huh? What's that? Hmm. Warmth, fire. ash. warmth. Warmth, fire, hum, right? So when we eat that strawberry, energy is released. How do we know that? How do we know what's going on in that strawberry? Is it when it's released into energy, right? That's called a... Calorie. We even talk about, what are calories? Calories, how much home does it take to raise a blah, blah, blah of water, a blah, blah, blah. Like, <laughs> I don't know. I'm not a, yeah. but right, ha, wait, a calorie is a measurement of how much home, how much warmth, fire does it take to raise the temperature of water. And related, says the Jewish mystical tradition, according to Harav Yitzchak Gitzberg, Chom is related to Chaim, life. That process that you just talked about is life. It's the Chom of the sun, of energy, our whole metaphor for all of that energy that is in the food, that's in the planet, that's in us. And then when it works through us, Right? It's expressed as chom, as energy, and that is life. Expression of energy is life. And that they are absolutely related for us as a, as a people. We, we don't look to disengage from the energy of the world. You should eat chocolate. You should make love. You should take Hot baths that smell really, really good. You should sleep late. Halabai. <laughs> right? Um, we're supposed to engage fully with Chayim. And to do that, you've got to have home going on. You have to have the transformation of energy into action, into life. So how do we take this life force all around us in and how do we take it in in such a way that we transform it into more life rather than destruction, death, devastation? Because we do that too, right? Engaging with life in certain ways Driving our SUVs whenever, however, as many as we want. Eventually, sorry, (laughs) there ain't going to be no (laughs) zone. There are implications. We shouldn't just engage any way we want. We have to have boundaries around how we behave, teachings about how to behave, discussions about how to behave, What are our norms and standards that are required now for us to be moral and ethical, spiritually mature and responsible human beings? And then what are the practices that are going to help us really do that? I don't bake bread, so it's not going to be a challah for me. But it can be something else. So, and I just want to tell you that I want to make clear the distinction between Chava Weisler Her practice, which is not to burn it. Her practice is to throw it in the yard for the animals. Right? That's different from... I'm not valuing them differently. I'm just saying, let's be clear. She's saying she doesn't burn it. She's found another way to... To have that sense of offering up, of trust that I'm gonna have enough, sharing it, giving it up to God by giving it up to God's other creatures, right? Returning it to, you know, more of its natural state, which is where it came from, whatever. That's her practice. But what she's quoting with the May This Release, you know, My Sin and Make Me Like a Newborn Baby is from a tchina that was written in I think like the 17th century. So I want to show you this book just so you know it exists. A Jewish woman's prayer book, which is a collection of tchines, of these traditional prayers said by women in the home when they're taking challah, when they're doing you know the different things that they did as part of their um, daily lives, and like the midwife's prayer. Did we know that there was a Jewish midwife's prayer? I didn't until someone gave me this beautiful book. Right? I didn't know that. Because when have I been exposed to any of that? So for a lot of us, I didn't want to skip Chava Weisler because one of the things I want to make sure we touch on is the normative system of Kabbalah, let's be absolutely clear, is a male system. Male, 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 male system. And only married males over the age of (laughs) thirty, And only married males over the age of 40 who already have children. Right? So... I mean, that's fine. That's our whole tradition in some ways is that way. That's fine. I'm not, I'm not criticizing. I'm saying, but there's a whole nother parallel tradition that we've not had access to. That we have not been able to access as women who did not grow up in a society where you birth babies at home. How would I know there's a midwife's prayer? I don't know any midwives. Right, uh, the babies I know were all born in the hospital or by accident in a taxi cab. They are not <laughs> born, right, on the dining room table. So, Lucy, author. Um, author. So, yes, this is edited by Aliza L. <laughs> a. V. I. E. is the last name. And the other thing I love about this is it's also some women's traditional reflections on some of the liturgy. So this is a tradition that's been lost to most of us, and I would just love for you to know that it's out there and that you can um, give it to other people, buy it, spread it. Um, let's reclaim some of these um, traditional women's uh, prayers that, that I think they have as early as like from like the from the 15th century.
1: You know, what keeps coming back to me is the story of the women in the Holocaust who were so starving. And they were in their bunks, two, three, four, uh, a pie. Oh. And at night they would share recipes. Wow! They would share recipes. Yeah. Oh, you make hollow this way, I make it that way, and that and they were. And there's actually a book of their recipes.
2: Wow!
1: Yeah, yeah. Oh and and the imagery, the power of creating. You know when you think about food you salivate right you want to eat you, you know you read a recipe and you you can taste it you know it's the, and they were at the one hand salivating even more through their hunger and at the same time they were sharing love through their recipes and and that's what they had to give in that moment and so in a way their recipes were also their prayers okay. do you know the name of that book i think it's called that it's very you, just, you can Google it. I think it's. it was at the Skirball bookstore for a while. I think it's something like uh, Recipes of the Jewish Women of the Holocaust. Something like that.
0: So when we talk about Chaim, when we talk about the energy, if you look at the Rabbi Joel Hecker piece, in his second paragraph here, he's, he's kind of using the you'll see the text above it that says that how was this whole reality created according to Jewish tradition? Vayi <coughs> or. How was this world created? It's created through speech. It didn't have to be that way. We take it for granted. It could have been and the world existed, right? For those of us who grew up with I Dream of genie. So, right, God could have snapped God could have dreamt the world into being. That is not our tradition, and we take it for granted. But the world was created for us through speech. So God speaks the world into existence, and that speech remains in everything that exists. Without that divine speech being spoken every day, everything would collapse. So when we speak words of prayer, when we speak a bracha, when we speak and hear words of Torah, when we share our Torah with each other, we are connecting with that divine speech that's in everything. And there's a reaction, a good one, don't worry, a good reaction that won't happen otherwise. So that's part of what he's addressing. But he says, if not, go to the second paragraph on page one of four. If not for the chiyut, the life force within an object, it would not exist. Without energy to be slowly moving, there's no table. Right? Right. Drop down to the third paragraph. He's talking about food. This spark, this chiyut, this life energy spark, is the taste sweet to the palate within the food. And this is not Rabbi Joel Helker, by the way. This is Menachem Nachum of Chernobyl, um, the Me'orinayim. So this is a Hasidic text. When you taste and see that something is good, that is yirhe vavhe. That is God. For God is the holy spark within that item, garbed in it. After a person has eaten a certain food, the chiyut remains within while the waste is cast out. Without any chiyut which is useless and foul. This is the spiritual ecosystem. We take in and the chiyut, when we take in appropriately, Right? and actually I would think he would say in general, the the chiyut comes into us; it stays in us, and the klipah, the 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 waste that has no chiyut in it, is expunged. It sounds
1: scientific. It sounds scientific.
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs>
0: this is the entire essence of our worship. This is where right we jump from. The scientific physical explanation and awareness of things to what I love about our tradition is now we're going to see them. They're not different things, right? This is the entire essence of our worship to bring all of the holy sparks from the shells where they reside in fragmented form back to the domain of holiness, attaining holy ascent from their fragmented state.
3: Right?
0: Everything we do Every way we engage with the world has the possibility to be this. Go to your next page. There's a paragraph that starts, Benachem Nachum nachum, Tversky. Yes? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. A student of the Magin. The third sentence of that paragraph the passage above teaches about the practice of Avodah begashmiut, Worship through materiality. Avodah begashmiut is the Hasidic term referring to the mystical act of raising sparks contained within the physical world and restoring them to their source within the realm of divinity. Avodah begashmiut, service. Worship—they're the same word in Hebrew. Service and worship, right? Avodah begashmiut. What's gashmiut? Is—is—is what's really here? What's literally here? Because there's potential and actual. Gashmiism is—is what's actual. And so it's not some idea or some ideal. Avodah begashmiut is service through eating. Jews. (laughs) Service to God through eating. Service to God through speech to each other. Service to God through feeding your dog. Service to God through wiping a child's nose. That all of that is releasing the sparks and raising them back to the spiritual Union that holds this cosmos together and that ensures the continued divine flow of Shefa, the abundant divine energy. It keeps it moving in this ecosystem that is dependent on us. They're stuck there otherwise. This is why another reason I love this tradition... This mystical tradition being rooted in a Jewish tradition... Is that it says we're necessary. I don't know about y'all... But a lot of times these days I feel like a pariah. The planet may not survive the evolution of human beings. I truly believe that. I truly believe we have evolved to a point... Where the this physical earth probably won't survive us having been here this is a really important corrective for me Amy God forbid you should think that you don't have a job here this spiritual ecosystem, the survival of the spiritual and material world residing together in any kind of harmony depends on human beings because we're the only ones with intention We're the only ones that can save certain species. But we also have the capacity to utterly annihilate them. This, for me, is critical because it says we have not only choice, not only obligation, but a critical role to play in the spiritual ecosystem that is not separate from the material world. What if we really, really got that? What if we really took that seriously? And I know most people think it's irrelevant. I get it. <laughs> right? I'm a dinosaur in some ways. I get it. But what else is going to do it? I'm really worried that we don't take this seriously. Even if we make the choice to believe something we don't believe. Right? Right? All this energy, nonsense, forget it, what's the rabbi talking about? She uses all that crazy language. It's so <laughs> pretend, it's so crazy. Okay, but what if we chose to believe that we can make this kind of an impact and this kind of a difference for the good? Look at your handout. I love this line at the bottom of page two in that last paragraph. End of the second line. The Chernobyl Rebbe states that the experience of the sweetness of the food is itself the experience of God. God is not removed and lofty. God is just more than and beyond this strawberry. But is in it. And when people say to me, do you believe in God? Rabbi, I say, no, I don't believe in God. I experience God. I don't have to believe. It's not, it's not outside of me. It's not something that is like disconnected from me that I have to take some leap to believe in. I experience God. This is what the Chernobyl Rebbe. this is what Jewish mysticism comes to try to encourage for us is experiencing the divine In our daily lives. In our daily intercourse with one another. Go up to top of page 3 or 4. According to this perspective, eating creates a unification within the body for animals and humans. In which the chiyut... The life force or holy sparks contained within the food bond with the chiut already residing within the diner's body. The spark of holiness that originated within the food boosts one's energy, providing continued sustenance while the waste that is generated lacking the holy life force is cast out. How many of us to hear about doing cleanses? <laughs> right? So, for the Chernobyl Rebbe, that is not a physical experience. That is a complete experience, that, or it can be, right? Of We can have that experience of cleansing the physical self be a spiritual cleansing as well. What are the ways we are ready to dump the toxins? <laughs> what are the ways we're ready to dump the waste, right? To force it kind of <coughs> out. And away, it's not useful to us anymore. I don't know about you, but I drag a pretty big samsonite suitcase behind me. What, what, what are the what are the ways we can encourage right kind of this 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 kind of getting it out? If it doesn't have chiyut in it, get rid of it. Now, it doesn't mean chiyut's always comfortable, right? The things that are calling me into growth are not generally happy, comfortable, easy, wonderfully feeling things. But it, if it isn't serving, chaim, if it isn't serving, pulling us more fully into life, then let's figure out how to get rid of it.
2: How much chaim is not? If you're tasting the sweetness of God, we live in an
3: era where we're over-consuming, and you
0: So I think. Kabbalah, like any wisdom tradition, would say that gluttony is the opposite of kedusha, of holiness, right that gratuitous, mindless eating is not about this this is about nourishment and enjoying the nourishment and a good a good piece of cake, okay right you. Know, Cake is wonderful, right? <laughs> but you don't eat half the cake and say, oh, I'm experiencing God. Or you might on your birthday or what. Like, once a year, right? Um, that's that's okay. But um, that's good. But otherwise, you're, you're going against the very life force, right, that knows too much sugar is not is never good for us. It's not good for us.
2: Mark? I think the concept here is really the spiritual practice. Yes. It's awareness, consciousness. But it's ultimately the spiritual practice. Yes. It's ability to transform your behavior, to become in conscious contact with God, to make it part of your life, part of your behavior, part of your growth, part of yes. your community.
0: And part of the beauty for me of saying something like that, sitting in a synagogue sanctuary, is that, So often I think right now the challenge is that we tend to think of religious teaching as somehow out there, over there, irrelevant, not related to my life. But there's so much in our tradition that truly is, right? So relatable, so informative, so helpful as a religious consciousness, as a spiritual consciousness related to my physical well-being and interaction with the world—that I just—I I can't stress enough how much I wish.
2: But I think for you know, just for most people, there's no understanding of the word spirituality. So
0: right, that it's somehow cut off and distinct from
2: it's like the of my regular life, life,
0: or my cupcake, or my. It's within the
2: spiritual practice and the strength each other um, perhaps
1: maybe, mm-hmm. maybe the route for today and boundaries is to think about where our food comes from and
3: eat locally and no GMOs and all the things that people think about today but to think about it in a spiritual sense and not to have our food brought to us from halfway around the world, and there's no need
0: for that. I think it's absolutely, absolutely true. And that's where Joel Hecker goes. Right? He says, Menachem, Nachum teaches that all of our activities bear holy sparks, which means that we must regard each moment as uniquely ours. Last paragraph of the piece. So when an individual eats an apple, for example... The apple's inner spark is personalized because it belongs to that individual alone. Right now, it's mine. It may not have been before it got to me, but it is now. My interaction with that apple is all about me now. That apple is all about me. What's gonna happen is now dependent on me. We must then question, how was it transported to my kitchen? Who picked the fruit and how were they treated? Was the apple grown in a way that fosters the earth's sustainability? Looking at the world in this way fosters not only spiritual consciousness, but also an enhanced sense of responsibility for oneself, one's environment, and ultimately the world. There's nothing less than this at stake for the Kabbalists, for us.
3: I'm wondering if the board could set up a fund for books that we've been talking about to be placed in the
0: library reference section, so that we can get up to date. So, which kind of books are you talking about, Blanche? Needing to put in our reference section here for access, tell me. Yes. Which kind? The. the I'm special. talking about the books you mentioned. Tonight. Tonight like books like the ones like the Yes and the ones you got is here. Mm-hmm. And uh
3: I don't think there's anything like that in the library.
0: Right. And we, we just don't even have the consciousness that there that there is such material, right, in yes. in Jewish tradition to, to access. Yes. So um So I want to I want to go back, as I said to Linda, to this to close with this idea from uh, from Chava Weisler and the last page of her piece, page 76 of your book. So she acknowledges that most of us are not engaged with baking bread every day and are not. A lot of our time is not consumed with preparing uh, and serving food, so it's taking challah is not necessarily the, you know, some central kind of thing that we're even going to have much ex- exposure to. But she says, can we still feel the miracle of the creation of sustenance in the daily rush to get dinner on the table, or the weekly struggle to make shabbos? Are we able to see our kitchens as holy, a place of blessing worthy of angels? Can we turn wholeheartedly in the midst of the hurry to praise God for the daily miracles of cooking, eating, and family gathering? So let's start this week just with that. Can we just have a little bit more awareness as we rush to the next meal, through the next meal, um, to the next thing. I'll do it tonight, putting my kid to bed. I promise.
2: <laughs> <laughs>
0: Mommy, five minutes more. Uh-huh. Like, so, you know, to, to, to see if we can't shift just a little bit to, to be aware of the absolute miracle of our uh, existence and our blessing of interacting with this glorious physical planet um, that we are of uh, and that ultimately owes its existence to how we choose to behave in the future. I hope to see you again next month. month. (laughs) Thank you, Susan. Um, And if you are interested in listening to any of the classes that we've had before this, they are available as podcasts uh, on iTunes uh, and or on our website. You just go to the learning tab, go to podcasts and look for this class. Um, but you can also search iTunes Podcasts um, for Keilat Israel. And then you can find this class listed there. And we've done probably, how many of these? Eight? Something like eight of these classes. So um, feel free to browse. And anything else you find there uh, on our yeah. podcast.